This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm David Carston. If you're watching the news, chatting with loved ones, or making small talk with strangers, it's hard to avoid the topic dominating the national conversation. Australia's housing crisis. With living costs skyrocketing across the country, many of us are asking the same questions. Can I afford this rent increase? Will interest rates rise again? When will my house be completed? Am I going to lose my home? In this episode, I was joined by Dr. Adam Crow, a Curtin Research Fellow at the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, AHURI, and researcher Ryan Briarty from the Curtin School of Accounting, Economics and Finance to unpack a new report on housing affordability. Adam and Ryan talked us through the current situation in Western Australia and discussed what we can expect from the housing market in the future. If you'd like to find out more about this report, you can find the links provided in the show notes. Adam, Ryan, thank you uh, very much for joining us. You've, you've published a report with the Bankwest Curtin Economic Centre on housing affordability. Your report reveals that mortgage delinquency rates have more than tripled for new homeowners who took out loans in 2022. It's frightening. While Perth house rental prices have increased by 13%. Also frightening. The largest spike in any capital city in the country those numbers represent. So what is going on and how did we get here? First of all, thanks for having us here. It is a great question. One of the first things that I'd like to use to, I guess, just preface the entire conversation is that the housing system is complex and any challenges faced in one aspect or one kind of um, tenure of the housing system is going to have flow on effects throughout the entire what we call a housing continuum. In terms of how we got here, I guess we could talk about some of the issues and challenges that we're facing in each of the housing tenures, so home ownership, social housing, private rental, and how that intersects with homelessness. Let's start with, with ownership. Okay, so obviously we've got a cost of living crisis that's squeezing a lot of households. Included in that is rising interest rate environment coupled with a rising um, house price environment. This is particularly challenging and the report shows this. It's particularly challenging for new entrants, so first-time home buyers, who have recently bought because they're buying in with very high debt and often with low equity, so meaning they own very little of their home. So their debt repayments are significant, so that could be one of the key contributors to higher delinquency rates. But it just also puts additional pressure on the household to be able to manage and cope with um, rising housing costs in addition to all of the other living costs that, are, that have been increasing over the past two or so years. Well, you've got a, a rental market there, a large portion of, of whom would be aspiring to one day own a home. It's especially difficult for them to take the next step. That's right. And one of the most difficult aspects of that is what we call the deposit gap or the deposit hurdle as the prices of housing has risen um, so significantly to be able to save up the required deposit to first become um, eligible for a mortgage has become so large that it's pricing a lot of people out from even getting into what we call you know, the housing market in terms of being able to secure a mortgage. And I guess there's, there's a flip side to that as well where people are unable to get say a 20% deposit that they need to be able to secure a uh, mortgage. So then they're taking out uh, mortgages with less equity. So perhaps only 15% deposit or 10% deposit, which means that you're most likely gonna be paying a higher interest rate 
but you're also going to be paying uh, lenders mortgage insurance. So it's just increasing those costs on the mortgage, just for, as an example. Well, and that's alongside that 13% rise in the rental you're paying just to be in a home. It's really looking quite insurmountable. That's right, because not only are you faced with a higher deposit due to the higher, the higher dwelling prices, but you're also, if you're renting, you've got to pay more rent and with the cost of living going up. So you, it's like a triple whammy for you. Your rent's gone up, your bills have gone up, and the deposit you need to save has gone up. So it makes it extremely difficult. Well, Ryan, the, the key phrase here is affordable housing. What are the challenges to making that happen in Western Australia in this environment? That's actually a, a really complex question because there are so many tenures involved. First of all, if you looked at And Adam's far more versed on social housing than I am. But if you look at the uh, neglect that social housing has seen over many years, then we bring into just the the general lack of supply of dwellings. And then you have a look at the, the limited dwelling types that we construct here in Perth. It needs to be tackled from so many different directions. I know Adam and I sort of have a little bit of different opinions or views on the private rental market, but I sort of seen over a period there where from sort of the end of the, the mining boom here in Perth, property prices dropped and a lot of investors got into the market in the mining boom because it looked like a good opportunity. Um, when the population, uh, interstate migration dropped right off and the population dropped right off, dwelling prices dropped, rents dropped, and we saw investors leave the market. And then when we had the COVID period and we actually had some price increases in dwelling price increases here in Perth, we had a huge number of investors say, this is our moment to exit and get out of this bad investment. So we had 20,000 investors leave over that two year COVID period. There's so many factors here for uh, affordable housing and they're all extremely intertwined. I think one of the key aspects that you just highlighted is that new housing development is almost 100% uh, reliant on the private market, so driven by profit and therefore favourable market conditions. So if we turn back to, say, the social housing deficit that we have in this country, more specifically in WA, is we just have a deteriorating social housing stock, yet the need for social housing is massive. We're at 33,000 plus people on the WA social uh, housing wait list. So that includes public housing and community housing. And some people are waiting up to 10 years for a home. I think the average wait time is two to five years, um, depending on the, the size of the household applying for the social housing dwelling. So we've got this massive deficit of social housing stock not being delivered. And that feeds into the broader supply constraints that we're seeing across the housing system. So um, if there's not enough social housing supply and we've got massive amounts of, uh, we've got large wait lists, people in those income brackets, typically low to lower income brackets, they're going to need to find housing within the private rental market. And then if we just skip back to what we were talking about, the difficulty getting into home ownership and the length, the, it's taking a lot longer to get into home ownership because we were talking about the deposit gap. It takes a lot longer to be able to save a deposit. That means the lower income earners who are potentially eligible for social housing but can't access it because there's no supply, they're competing for housing within the private rental market with maybe medium to or moderate to medium income earners 
who 20 years ago would have already transitioned into home ownership. So we've got a larger cohort of people competing for a limited supply of housing in the private rental market, which we've seen in the, and we demonstrated this in the data um, presented in the report that we've just seen the private rental sector expand significantly across Australia in the past 20 years. Um, in WA, we're seeing one in three households are now qualifying as what we call long-term renters. So staying in the rental sector for more than 10 years, which is never the way that the private rental sector has been designed in this country in terms of how we regulate it, in terms of the rights that are kind of ascribed to anyone within the private rental system. And so we've got a lot of like long-term, lifelong private renters, which we haven't really seen in this country. And we don't necessarily have the mechanisms in place to offer the same level of security that you would get in the home ownership or in a social housing setting. So I think they circle back to some of the larger kind of conversations that we're having around what are some of the key challenges to creating affordable housing is A, we need social housing, needs major investment in social housing. And I think there are some other issues that could be uh, resolved as well in terms of the way we get new supply um, online, which we may talk about later on in the interview. I was just going to jump in there and and just ask, the status quo right now is not the Australian dream of a couple of generations ago, that's for sure. It seems like a very straightforward question, but societally speaking, why is affordable housing so important? Why is it so important? Well, access to safe, secure, affordable place to live, it's a human necessity. It's the foundation for all people to succeed in life in whatever way um, you might perceive that to be. Um, And then a persistent lack of affordable and accessible housing, it is a societal problem. Um, It's a household issue, but it is a societal problem. It causes, like namely, it causes housing stress. Housing stress, um, lower income housing households, sorry, spending more than 30% of income on housing. It is often of uh, poor quality. And it just puts constraints on every other aspect of life, being unable to afford household items, schooling, education, um, food. So there's a generational impact potentially, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. Ryan, have you done work on the generational impact side of the housing system? No, but um, I'm looking at the effect of intergenerational wealth transfers. And it's something that's really standing out to me is this whole idea of how you generationally people get locked out of home ownership and like I said those who are fortunate enough to have parents who are wealthy enough and generally are homeowners themselves this gets transferred onto the children and uh, and as Adam points out you know longer term renting is becoming more common or lifelong renters and so are we having a situation where if your parents are lifelong renters you're born to be a lifelong renter yourself because the affordability and the deposit gaps becomes too hard for people to get into to home ownership. It's a big problem. Ryan, you've been looking at the data and putting together a report with Adam and co. How does the situation in WA actually compare to other states? Um, the private rental market is we have a, a lower vacancy rate than the other states. And I believe a large part of that is due to investors wanting to exit the market because it has been financially unrewarding. As Adam sort of rightly says, that's one of the problems we have here with having a a free market private rental system. And I think his comments are really valid that 
our private rental market was never really set up to operate the way it's trying to operate now. And particularly for Perth, where we have such highs and lows in population growth, it makes it harder. So yeah, I, I see a situation where, you know, for Perth to have these inflows and outflows of people, it affects the profitability of uh, investments. And so if you get people exiting the market and it's taken up by first home buyers, well, the first home buyers entering the market's great, but it certainly doesn't help renters. And let's think about the landlords just for a second. They are also dealing with, in some cases, mortgage stress. They have obligations to meet their mortgage. Where are they going to get the extra funding to meet that obligation? Well, there really is only one answer, isn't it? And that's to press downward and put pressure on on their tenant. Yeah, look, um, rents may have increased by 13%, but for landlords who have a mortgage, their mortgage repayments have gone up a lot more than the 13%. Um, landlords basically don't look at the yield or the rent as the driving factor behind the investment. It's the long-term capital gain, which is what most mum and dad investors are looking for, something that's going to assist for extra funding in retirement and those sort of factors. Just anecdotally, I mean, I talked to so many people around 2016-17 investors What happened then also was not only did rents drop off and the value of their properties drop off, um, they wanted to sell and get out of it, but they were going to actually take a loss. And the banks at the time said, well, we're not even prepared to give you a private loan to pay the difference to get out of this. So I had people who were working two jobs just to pay the mortgage for the investment property, which is supposed to be this financial windfall or vessel. So it it doesn't always pay off or, or work out. And so I sometimes feel that, and Adam will quickly point out to me that you know, WA has extremely uh, uh, favourable rental laws which favour landlords, but it's not always the gravy train people quite look at it. Well, it's, it seems like it's very difficult for everybody concerned, um, <laughs> unless you own a home outright. But let's start talking about some potential solutions. Adam, what are the key priorities for the state government to ensure a greater supply of affordable housing There are many approaches um, governments can take. Um, We list some of them in the report, but I I just think it's important to note that there are many different approaches that can be taken and depending on the approaches that are taken, others may be required to kind of take into consideration those flow on effects. But number one is that needs to be a significant investment to improve both the quantity, but also the quality of the social housing, social and affordable housing stock. We calculated that there needs to be a minimum of 900 new social homes delivered annually just to maintain the current stock level. So ideally you'd need maybe a thousand a year and it can't just be a short term three year injection of a thousand new homes a year and then that's it, which is what we often see. It needs to be a sustained 50 year plan of a thousand homes every year. And that is going to have a big impact on the broader supply issues that we've discussed, for example, because it would reduce some of the pressure on the private rental market by enabling those on the wait list to be able to move into a social home as opposed to competing in the private market. Without getting too far into the weeds, Adam, and and taking you too far off track, why do we find ourselves in this situation in the first place? Why have successive governments not kept up with the demand that is quite clearly there? It's a brilliant question. And I mean, I think we could maybe talk about this for hours, Uh, but I think it would 
have a lot to do with the way that we think about housing in this country and also the shift that occurred in the 1980s as part of the, the what we call the neoliberal term, which was a divesting of public funding from the direct supply of housing and more reliance on uh, the private market, thinking privatisation would be the key for solving the inefficiencies of a public-run housing system. Um, there is a statistic, and I don't have it uh, off the top of my head, but I think that we put more money into the um, housing market today than we did 30, 40 years ago before this neoliberal turn. The only difference is we put the, the public funding goes into the demand side of the housing market. So, for example, first home buyer grants, massive tax concessions through negative gearing, capital gains tax um, concessions, but we're not putting it into the direct provision of housing supply. Whereas prior to this neoliberal turn in the 1980s, we had massive public housing infrastructure programs and us and a lot of high income countries had similar programs and we weren't seeing the um, housing crises that we're seeing today. One other thing that's also interesting is if we need to build a, a thousand social dwellings a year, we need to build 20 a week and we have a construction industry that's able to keep up with the current workload. Wait times have just pushed out and out and out. To me, it's just absolutely fascinating that we need to bring more trades and more skilled people in and we've got to build houses and we've got nowhere to house the people that we're going to bring in. So it's difficult because we know what we need, but delivering it is another story altogether. And so the next um, priority uh, in terms of a, a, a government intervention that I'll list does have a direct linkage to what we're talking about here in the current um, need for construction workers, the pressures on the construction sector. And so it would be that any demand side government incentives, they need to be targeted. So they can't just be like what we did. I'll, I'll give the perfect example is during COVID, Australian government and state and territory governments obviously didn't know what was going to happen throughout the um, progression of the pandemic. And they operated, they made some decisions based on the best information at the time. And one of the largest stimulus packages that we've seen in at least the last decade was um, home building stimulus package. So the federal government released Home Builder and a lot of state and territory governments provided complementary programs. So I think in WA you could get up to 50000 I think in some areas you might have been able to get up to $75,000. But this was an untargeted scheme. Anyone could go for this um, home builder either to build a new house or to substantially renovate an existing house. And it was taken up widely. And a lot of the issues that we're seeing today are contributed to what we see as a, um, there's a term for it in terms of it has a vacuum effect where these demand side stimulus, such as home builder, it brings forward a lot of demand from people who would have been buying or building in the next two to three years. It incentivized them to bring forward their decision to this very short space of time. And now we've got a huge backlog of housing that need completions. But then in addition to that, we just kind of had the perfect storm with COVID where international supply chains were, were crushed. So that just placed additional pressures on the construction sector. Just using that as an example, um, and we have seen that vacuum effect in previous um, stimulus, effect, uh, stimulus packages delivered in the past, is that any demand side 
stimulus, it needs to be, or incentive, should I say, it needs to be targeted. So, for example, shared equity schemes for low to moderate income earners, shared equity where it might be partnering with the government, say through Keystart, South Australia have a similar type of scheme where the government might take ownership of 20% of a dwelling. So it, it reduces the amount that you would need to get into that, into, into home ownership, which as we just linking back to what we just spoke about at the, at the top of the conversation, gives you that security that you need. And, and properly means tested as well. That would be <laughs> certainly uh, go a long way in terms of targeting. A, a, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, just, just opening up that, um, uh, that previous home builder scheme to all and sundry is why we're here, isn't it? it? It's a contributing factor. But but in all fairness, though, to the government, I mean, at the time, I mean, COVID, when it was hitting, I mean, you know, everyone expected, you know, the world to fall off the fall off the edge of the cliff sort of thing. Um, and, and so it was definitely a, a knee-jerk reaction. And building stimulus is used is predominantly in in a lot of countries to stimulate with uh, with negative economic growth. Um, so it's not surprising that they turn to it. And I think if they could have foreseen the end effect of it all, um, I think they would probably look at the decision again. Um, interestingly, as governments, the federal government and state governments were making their decisions about how they wanted to implement a stimulus program into the economy in 2020, I was privileged enough, along with another colleague here at Curtin University, Professor Stephen Rowley, to be part of a large national study looking at how best to stimulate the economy. And our findings was that to replicate that of the Rudd government during the financial crisis of 2008, 9, 10, was a massive social housing infrastructure program because we do know that there is a multiplier effect in terms of, de- of stimulating the construction industry. It has a multiplier effect in terms of delivering economic benefits throughout the entire wider economy, a wider society. And the, the mid-2000s um, social housing stimulus program did just that. It put construction workers to work. It delivered the housing that we needed in a very targeted way, in this case, for We for had the, the, school, the, the school building program as well. Yeah, there was numerous kind of programs attached to that. And all based around construction. Yeah, so most critical commentators in 2020 were advocating for a social housing, so a supply-side um, stimulus package, but the federal government and state governments decided to um, focus on the demand-side um, stimulus program. So we, we could have dealt with that in different ways, and we wouldn't have been, uh, we wouldn't be experiencing this this vacuum effect that we're now experiencing, where we've got like a huge number of um, homes that need compl- uh, to be completed with a lack of construction workers. But if you look at the pipeline for the future, there's very uh, the new commencements have dropped off a cliff because we've pulled everything forward. So Ryan, while we are sitting here with the comfort of 2020 hindsight, Adam, you're saying there was precedent, and perhaps the government of the time didn't pull the right levers. And this is where we find ourselves today. I acknowledge it was a very difficult situation, very, so many unknowns, but there was a lot of evidence uh, that were more favorable of a supply side stimulus compared to a demand side stimulus. But um, it would probably depend on your politics and ideology of the housing system. <laughs> Did we run through all of your recommendations a couple of others is that we 
need to support the provision of new infrastructure and development. So we needed a more efficient development approval system to reduce costs and timeframes. Um, and we need to release um, infill sites at a faster rate. So that has a lot to do with some changes, some regulatory changes that will give developers, home builders, a uh, greater flexibility in being able to bring housing online in different areas and a diversity of housing is one thing that we need. So not just detached dwellings 60 kilometres from the Perth city, but a diversity of housing stock throughout the entire city uh, with a focus on infill development as opposed to greenfield, outer suburb development. Um, And then I would also argue we do need a... um, We need balanced residential tenancy reform. We did see some changes a couple of weeks ago to uh, to West Australia's um, Residential Tenancy Act, but I would argue, and a lot of the evidence would suggest, that we do need to go much further. Australian tenants have fewer rights uh, than renters in almost every other OECD country, and WA has uh, some of the worst tenants' rights in Australia. So we have a long way to go in order to improve the experience of being a um, renter in Western Australia, especially given the fact that uh, options for other forms of tenure are limited and we know that people are going to be spending um, time in the rental sector for a lot longer, perhaps their entire life. So they need, number one, more security and more flexibility to be able to make a landlord's property a home. Some compelling recommendations there, but for the moment, we will take a quick break and be right back after this message. While we take a quick break, let's talk about technology. Of course, there are all different types of technology, like the kind used to listen to this podcast. Then there's a kind that can help you predict a disease outbreak before it happens. Technology and big data are changing what it means to be a healthcare professional. With Curtin's unique graduate certificate in big data and digital health, you can learn how to analyse vast data sets, including machine learning techniques, to help drive better decision making. So whether you're a healthcare worker or graduate from a health or non-health background, if you want to enter the field of data analytics, this online course could be exactly what you're looking for. Applications for this and many other postgrad health courses are now open for 2023. Search Curtin Postgrad Health and make tomorrow better. Well, Adam, this is the, the second report on housing affordability released by the Curtin Bank West Economic Centre. Can you share more about the role of the centre and your involvement in its work? And uh, how does that work tie in with your research for Ahuri? Yeah, absolutely. My contribution to the housing affordability report, it's really quite an extension of the type of work I do for Ahuri, um, but just with a WA focus. As a housing researcher, my work is centred around creating a more fair and equitable housing system. The research that I do for Ahuri, it's very policy facing, focuses on various aspects of the housing system. Um, where challenges have been recognised by policymakers and and the wider community. I've been privileged, had the privilege to be involved in a lot of projects looking at um, alternative housing um, experiences, options for older, lower income Australians, um, housing for people with a disability, among quite a few other projects centred around um, housing affordability, particularly within the private rental sector. 
So yeah, just getting back to the question of how that ties in with the, uh, the, with the center, with BCEC, just that experience that I've gained through doing that housing research with Ahuri, it just tied in nicely to the, the nature of this housing affordability um, report on Western Australia. It, it remains to be seen whether or not the recommendations in the report will be taken up. But as it stands now, with this snapshot that you've been examining, what can we expect the future of housing in Australia to actually look like? Well, just looking at Perth, we've sort of touched on this before, this idea of we we keep building detached houses and we keep now making the blocks smaller and smaller. Perth now has the smallest average uh, greenfield block size of any capital city, which sounds almost, it doesn't make sense because you think we're so spread out, you think they'd be bigger, but we seem to want to spread out further and not build. And I think the infill is a just a great example. And getting back to it, I think there needs to be a big rethink, especially on the part of certain councils. I know they have this idea that they want to sort of protect the identity of their, their suburbs. And then, of course, you also have the idea of the NIMBYs, not in my backyard, where nobody wants something that's a bigger complex built next to them in a suburban type setting. But at some stage, we're going to have to really get away where at the moment, we're, you know, 90, over 90% of all our new builds are, are detached dwellings. We're going to have to get away from that. I think part of it is definitely what we're supplying, but also I think part of it is what people have a preference for. And it's like almost like this mentality in Perth where this is how we live sort of thing. And I think until we sort of start to get more people into higher density housing and plan that housing with the right sort of infrastructure and in the right environment with the right sort of public open space around it. We just can't keep spreading up and down the coast. It has to change at some stage. And there has to be an appetite for it from council, for new home buyers. I mean... Sorry, I was just going to jump in there, Ryan. Is that a potential target for incentivisation that maybe Adam was, was pointing towards before? I'd say for sure. Yeah higher infill, higher density housing, and changing our expectations going forward. Is that something we need to strive for, really? Is this generational change in expectation about what we have a right to in terms of our housing? We might not necessarily be able to have what our parents had. It is a different set of circumstances now. I think that's absolutely true. You know, we seem to have this where even though we only have, on average, a little over two and a half people or 2.3 people in a home, I'm just trying to remember, but we build homes with four bedrooms you know, on tiny blocks. I'm not sure why we have this lack of diversity in housing here in Perth. It can't be just, this is what we build, this is what we supply, and that's what people buy. If people didn't want it, they wouldn't buy it. And maybe it's just generational and it will slowly change with time. Adam and I were talking about this before. He, he's lived overseas a lot and they have a completely different attitude to the, the diversity of housing available. And we we're sort of trying to sort of nut out why is it that that's in place in one country but not here and is it like i said is it what we supply or is it what we demand well adam raised the point of a housing market that was very much geared and always has been to the australian dream of home ownership at the expense i guess of more ideal rental circumstances like you say in other parts of the world rentals are often a lifetime commitment and it is a very different way of thinking. Home ownership isn't necessarily on the cards or a priority. It is a lifelong commitment to renting one apartment or one detached unit. 
It's a different way of thinking and living. And part of that problem is the way the private rental market has been set up. I mean, for most people, I'm assuming to buy an investment properly, they're probably going to be in their mid-40s, looking to sell it maybe at 60 or getting close to retirement. So they keep it for a 15-year period. Now, at some stage, they're going to sell the apartment, so the people who buy it may not want, want to rent it out, may not buy it as an investment, may buy it to live in. But also, I can't sort of get my head around why we continually have six and 12-month lease periods. Um, I don't know whether it's something that property managers want to um, encourage because it's, uh, it works for them financially. I'm not sure. I can give an example of how it does look elsewhere. I lived in Germany for 10 years and I had a, I was a, li- I had a lifelong lease, a lifetime lease is what it's often called. And that involved, um, as I said, a lifetime rent contract with a property management company. Um, during the first two years, that's kind of like a probationary type period where if you're not happy with the place, you can cancel after two or if the landlord is unhappy with you for some reason, that gives them a bit, they've got a bit more um, leeway there to end the agreement. But then after that two year period, it is very similar to um, signing a mortgage agreement, so to speak. It's like you take responsibility to, to take care of that place. The landlord has a responsibility, the owner has a responsibility to keep it well maintained. And then during that time, you can make minor modifications as you choose. You can paint the walls, you can put pictures up, you can have pets that can't be discriminated against by a landlord. There's also rent stabilization in place where rents can't exceed a certain kind of index. In Berlin, where I was, they couldn't exceed more than 5% every year and a new rent contract can't exceed more than 10% of an entire district average. And it's just a way to keep rent stabilized, which in the however many decades it's been in place has worked during booms and busts. So in um, in harder times, it it hasn't been so impactful for the investor, but when there's a housing, a tight housing market, we like to call it, it isn't as impactful for the tenant because they are some, their rents are somewhat stabilised and they're not uh, dependent on the on the on the, f- the flows of the market. Uh, but that's just an example of how a housing system with stronger tenant rights, rent stabilisation, can create a much more equitable um, housing system and therefore equitable society. I think that's brilliant because if you can, like you say, you can even out the boom and the bust, which you know occurs here with Perth with the population changes, then we probably wouldn't have had quite the exodus of investors that we've had and we probably wouldn't have quite the rental crisis that we have. It does need a, a total rethink. So for you, Ryan and Adam, the future of housing in Australia doesn't look great if we stay the course that we are on now. I think that's a fair assessment. And I'm going to say something provocative where if we do want to change the course of our housing future, before we get into the detail and the nitty gritty, we need to have a serious national conversation about how we view housing in this country. Do we want to prioritise housing as a human need and social good or continue treating it as a wealth creation vehicle? Housing is political and the shape of the housing system is always the outcome of negotiation and struggles between different social groups. And currently, in its current form, housing has become a debt-fueled, financialized, speculative asset. House prices and rents have completely decoupled from household incomes. 
um, and we need to resolve this conflict um, between housing as a home and as real estate before we can really start ironing out any of the nitty gritty policies and practice that might be implemented. Um, Because I think until we do that, we're just applying Band-Aid solutions to a broader kind of systemic societal issue. And just to add on that, home ownerships in Australia is regarded as the, the fourth pillar of retirement income. Um, the difference between housing costs in retirement for a homeowner, I think it's about uh, ABS $50 a week. If you're mortgaging, it's $450 a week. And if you're renting, it's $390 a week. That difference of $50 to $390 for uh, people in retirement, $350 a week, it's a massive amount of money. So while our retirement and retirement incomes and, and how people retire um, are financially secure is also based around home ownership, the people who don't get into home ownership are obviously at a distinct disadvantage. And as I said before, generationally, their kids then become at a distinct disadvantage and it, the situation or the, the gap widens. Well, gents, ahead of a national conversation that so obviously needs to happen that would hopefully lead to some significant policy change. There are people struggling right now. Uh, What can they do in terms of these soaring housing costs? What sort of resources would you recommend that they access just to deal with the now? It's a good question. There are many resources available and they are all dependent on your current situation. Um, The federal government's Money Smart program is a great resource. And then the WA uh, government also offer financial advice and assistance programs for housing, again, depending on your, um, your situation and often your um, income. For tenants, anyone struggling with issues, they might be with your landlord, property manager, or you just might be seeking advice and want to know your rights. Circle Green Legal is a great community-led nonprofit tenancy advice agency here in Western Australia. For anyone at risk of or experiencing homelessness, uh, contact EntryPoint or any homelessness support services such as St. Bart's, St. Pat's, Rua, Uniting. Um, there are programs and opportunities available to you. The WA government also has a range of different helplines depending on your experience. These 24-hour helplines are a lot uh, more kind of crisis-oriented So anyone perhaps experiencing family or domestic violence can call any of the 24-hour helplines that the WA government offer on their website. We'll certainly provide links to all of those services and resources in our show notes. But gentlemen, for now, a very insightful chat today on the state of affairs in terms of Australia and Western Australia's housing in particular. It will be interesting to see what happens over the next 12 to 18 months. And hopefully we do see some change, some positive change. Thank you so much to both of you, Adam and Ryan, for coming in today. Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciated the conversation. Cheers. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. And if you want to hear more from experts, stay up to date by subscribing to us on your favourite podcast app. Bye for now.